Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. If you're a guest with us this morning, my name is John Sherrill, and I'm one of the pastors here at Fifth Reformed Church, and we welcome you. Uh, no matter how you found this service online, it's good to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, before we dive in, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak, that you are speaking. Our desire is to hear from you, to hear from you and what you're saying in scripture and to hear from you by what you're saying through your spirit. Uh, so pour out your Holy Spirit on us to that end, Lord. Help us here. We're listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in week two of a series called Dear Church uh, that's focusing on uh, the letters to the seven churches in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And we started last week with a kind of introduction, and today we dive into the first letter, the letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, but in, in all of these churches, there's a pattern that emerges in the letter. Uh, uh, the Lord greets the church and then says, I know. You know, Jesus knows us and what's going on in our church. He knows our struggles, our successes, knows everything. And, and all this goes to the point uh, that, that God isn't way out there somewhere. Uh, God is, is right here among us, with us, and, and by the Holy Spirit, even within us, right? That's what we believe. Jesus knows us, all, all of our good and bad and ugly. We are known by the Lord. And after saying this, I, I know in each of these letters, Jesus goes on to give uh, either an encouragement or a correction, or in some cases, a blend of both. Uh, today's letter is a blend of both. And, and through these encouragements and correction, Jesus lays out to each church one characteristic of a true and living church, uh, a healthy and vibrant congregation, uh, really a healthy and, and vibrant faith, I would argue, too. So at the end, when we put all of these uh, messages together, we'll see that we have seven marks of a healthy congregation. And, and this is the really powerful piece of these letters. This is not speculative. We know that these things matter to the Lord because Jesus told us directly that they matter to him. And in that sense, the, these letters were not just intended for those seven ancient churches alone, but for the church across time, really for all Christians everywhere. So we, we listen with that in mind. Those letters to them are for us. Now, just this last week, I read an opinion piece uh, in the newspaper titled, America is facing five epic crises all at once. And I won't detail that, but we are all feeling that. Uh, division and fear and depression and infection, right? All of these things happening at once. There's a very real spiritual struggle going on right now. And, and I still contend that in times like this, we don't need to hear about the Lord. We need to hear from the Lord. And in these seven letters, we have exactly that, a message from the Lord to the church. So here's, here's how the first letter begins. It starts with Jesus telling us of his unique vantage point for evaluating how things are going in the church. Now, this is pretty obvious, but he, he shares where he's at and how he can know what's going on. He, he writes this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write... And each of these letters is addressed to the angel of the church in such and such a place. So 
we have to start by asking, who are these angels? You know, we, we hear the word angel and we think automatically of heavenly beings. And, and we believe in angels that are heavenly beings, that, uh, you know, creatures made by God who do God's bidding, uh, except for those who have fallen. And in that sense, the angel of the church in Ephesus might be referring to an actual heavenly being tasked with kind of overseeing the church, guarding the church. Uh, but the word angel has a more general meaning, which means messenger of God. And in that sense, it might be referring to the human leader of each of these congregations, the, the under-shepherd of Christ in each of these local churches, or, or in our terms, the senior pastor or something akin to that. And, and that is how I read these letters, because for me, that just kind of makes sense. And when they're read in that way, these letters are from Jesus to the human leader of the church saying, in essence, hey, you're leading this church on my behalf. Here's how it's going. Here's what you need to know about your congregation. Then Jesus goes on. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. From chapter one in Revelation, we know that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what Jesus is saying here is that he is in a very unique position to evaluate how things are really going on in the church. He's telling us that he's not way out there somewhere. He's right here. You know, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars, meaning the seven angels, which again I take to mean the seven senior leaders of those churches. Jesus holds the leaders of the church in his hand. Talk about humbling. Our family uh, got a kitten on Wednesday after several years of objection on my part. <laughs> uh, just six weeks old, really cute. Uh, just today we named her Lelai. When you hold a kitten in your hands, you feel every move it makes. Uh, you can feel it breathe, every little, every little twitch you feel. Right? Jesus holds the leaders of the church in his hand. He knows their every move, their every breath, their every action. He knows everything. And Jesus walks among the seven lampstands, meaning the seven churches. Jesus is right here in our midst, walking around, observing how things are going with us and with our church. He's not way out there somewhere. He's right here right here with us, wherever we are, I mean, not just right here in the church building. Jesus is with his church, the people. And it's from this unique vantage point that Jesus can say, I know, I know what's really going on. And, and to the Ephesians, Jesus starts with encouragement. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Jesus commends the church for their hard work, for their perseverance, and, and for their orthodoxy, their correct belief. In hard work, Ephesus was known as the metropolis of Asia. It was the capital of this Roman province. 
a hub of trade and business. Uh, years prior to this, the Apostle Paul recognized the strategic importance of Ephesus. During his second missionary journey, he wanted to go there to preach, but uh, there's, there's a rather kind of bizarre line in Acts that said uh, that the Holy Spirit prevented them from going there to preach. But on the return leg of the second missionary journey, uh, Paul visited Ephesus, and, and the visit was so compelling that on his third missionary journey, he went there and spent two years in Ephesus, making disciples and ultimately planting a church. And, and when Paul left, Timothy took over as the leader of the church in Ephesus. And early Christian tradition tells us that after, after Timothy, the apostle John led the church in Ephesus. And it's probable that uh, the apostle John wrote 1 John, his first epistle, to the church in Ephesus. So this church was well known. It was well-established. It was well-respected. Uh, a modern equivalent would be a church in a big city that everybody knows really well. It has, it's been around for a long time, has a great reputation. You know, oh man, you're moving, to, you're moving there? You've you got to go to Ephesus Church. They're doing everything. You need programs for everybody, serving the poor, caring for the vulnerable. Man, they're, they're all over that city. I mean, the Ephesian Christians were working hard. No, no 20-80 rule there, right? No 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. The whole church was engaged, working diligently. And the Lord saw it and commended them for it. That was a good thing. Jesus also commended their perseverance. Being a Christian in Ephesus was hard. They had endured and were continuing to endure harsh opposition. As the capital of the Roman province, uh, uh, Ephesus would have been the center of emperor worship. And also the great shrine to Diana of the Ephesians was there, known as the mother goddess of Asia. Back when Paul spent those two years in the city, uh, when, he, when the church was first planted, there was a big brouhaha over the decline in revenue of, uh, for the silversmiths who made these little uh, silver replicas of the shrine of Diana. Because as Paul preached and people turned to Christ, they stopped buying those things. And it, and it caused a big uproar. You can read about that in Acts 19. It was hard being a Christian in Ephesus. There was occasional physical violence, perpetual social ostracism. Christian-owned businesses were boycotted. And if you were a Christian, some business owners wouldn't sell to you. So shopping was a problem, too. And it was hard. Jesus saw all this and commended them for their perseverance. That was a good thing. And the Lord commended their orthodoxy. The church in Ephesus tested those teachers who claimed to be apostles but weren't. They sorted out right teaching from false teaching, and, and they remained committed to the gospel they had received. And right, right at the end of his final missionary journey, Paul had his ship put into port at Miletus, a town just south of Ephesus, and he sent for the elders from the church at Ephesus, and they, they came for a visit. Paul wanted to give them a final farewell. He knew he would never see them again. Uh, if you haven't read that account in a while, you should. That's in Acts chapter 20, uh, verses 13 and following. But in, in that final address to them, Paul gave them a very clear warning about false teachers. Listen to this. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, 
savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. The false teachers are coming, the savage wolves. Don't be drawn away from the simple and pure gospel of Jesus. Don't let anyone deceive you. Well, they weren't drawn away. And they did not allow anyone to deceive them. Jesus saw this and commended them for it. Their correct belief and doctrinal purity was a good thing. So far, and this is seeming like the best church ever, a model congregation in every way. Until this line. Yet I hold this against you. It's a classic Jesus moment. Jesus is the master of using relational invitation and challenge to help us grow. You know, invitation is encouraging and building up. It makes you feel good. Challenge is also a building up, but it doesn't feel so good. It's where God's truth meets our failures. But this this challenge, this correction is not, not for the purpose of guilting people, but for inviting us, all of us, back into a path of greater life. And can you imagine Jesus looking at you and saying, wow, you are, you're knocking it out of the park. These three things, you're doing great. I see, I know, good job. Yet, I hold this against you. <laughs> I mean, that, that'll wake you up. The living, reigning king of the universe saying, I hold this against you. So what was the problem? You have forsaken the love you had at first. You know, at first glance, it's not 100% clear. Love for whom? Is this love for God or love for other people or, or both? And again, it's, it's not completely clear. My, my contention is that this is primarily love for God. Of course, it's important to love people as well. Another primary command in Scripture, right? But, but I think our first love, uh, the, the love we had at first, was love for Christ when we came into relationship with God. Think of all the biblical imagery of how our relationship with God is like a marriage, you know, where Israel is the wife or the, the church is the wife and uh, uh, Yahweh or Jesus uh, the husband. The prophet Hosea was commanded to marry an unfaithful wife for the very purpose of illustrating God's experience of us unfaithful people and for illustrating God's heart and passion for us, specifically that God pursues us in the midst of our unfaithfulness to him. (laughs) Right at the very place where we're most offensive to him, causing God the most pain. You know, and, and how much more in Christ. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the, the Ephesian church was, 
was humming uh, from all human appearances, you know, beehive of activity, all sorts of good stuff going on. They were hard workers. They had faced challenges in living out their faith, been persecuted, and they didn't cave. They persevered. They stayed in the game. They didn't quit. And they remained doctrinally pure in an era where there were false teachers on every side and at every turn. But they lost the main thing, love for Jesus, you know, actually loving God, not doing a lot for God, not enduring difficulty for God, not preserving correct teaching about God, loving God. In, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper starts with this. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is the fuel and goal of missions. All mission work is intended to invite people back into a loving relationship with God. You know, God wants our willing love and devotion. God wants our willing worship. God wants us. And God wants us to live in a relationship of love with him. And, and somehow that basic reality is so easy to forget. We get busy doing stuff for God. And, and that's good. That's not bad. Jesus sees it and commends us for it. We confront the challenges of following Jesus in this life and, and we press on. And that's good. We're, we're careful with what to believe, listening to new ideas, comparing those ideas to scripture and testing the spirits. That's good. But if in the midst of all that, we forget that this whole thing is about a relationship with an actual person named Jesus who loves us and desires us to love him with a self-giving love. If we lose track of that, we've lost track of everything. So, so how, how do we love God? What does that look like? In, in his little book on these passages, John Stott wrote this. We must remember that what the Bible means by love is not primarily an emotion. It is more loyalty than affection and comes under the control of the will rather than the emotions. It is the purposeful commitment of one person to another person in which the lover sets his beloved's will and welfare before his own. And remember, Jesus told us what loving God looks like. If you love me, keep my commands. And the Apostle John reinforces that idea. This is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Now, his commands give us life, draw us into a better life, a, full, a fullness of life that we can't manufacture on our own. I think it was a little over a year ago, a, a good friend of mine died to this life. He his name was Fred. He had cancer, and he battled it for a couple years. 
uh, and, and ultimately succumb to that. And I, I still remember one of my last meetings with Fred. He, he and I really connected. He was the kind of uh, person and friend who you feel like really got you. Like we, we connected on a spiritual, intellectual uh, level like few other friends I've had. And one of the final conversations, Fred was just reflecting on, on his journey, and not just of the cancer, but of his whole life. And, and his final conclusion was this, John, if it, if it pulls you away from Jesus, get rid of it. Get rid of it. And this isn't just a suggestion. Jesus commands us to, to repent, to change our thinking, and to turn back to him. And, and we should receive that command as the gracious invitation it is. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent. And do the things you did at first. Jesus tells them to think back to their former days, to a pattern of life and faith with him that they had experienced and which they remembered. And he says, do it that way again. Do those things again. Come home to me. And the stakes are high for the very reason that this is the main thing. This, this primary relationship of self-giving love with God, it, this, is the, this is the goal. This is that to which God is trying to restore us. This is why Jesus died for us. Jesus says this, If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. If you don't change your thinking and, and reform your ways... With regard to loving me, I will remove your church from its place. Remember, the lampstand means the church. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I think that I've experienced some churches that have been removed from their place by the Lord. A, a church whose light went out years ago. They might have a building. They might have some people. They might have a minister. They might have some money. They might even be doing some good stuff. But there is no real spiritual light that would illuminate the world's only Savior and point people to him because there is no real love for Christ. Therefore, Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is speaking. Let's listen. And finally, the Lord makes a promise to those who do repent and, and turn back to him and rekindle that first love. In fact, there's a promise at the end of all of these letters because the intent of them, again, is not to condemn, but to invite us back into relationship with God. Here's the invitation or the promise to the Ephesians. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
Now, if you're less familiar with the Bible, we have to rewind for a second back to Genesis, the Garden of Eden, the two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. And remember, Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, and God kicked them out of the garden. Seems a little harsh if you don't know the full story. And then you put a flaming sword by the entrance to the garden to prevent Adam and Eve from going back into the garden and to prevent them from eating of the tree of life and thus live forever in their fallen state. Because something broke in that moment. And what broke was the loving relationship with our Creator. See, coming back into relationship with God where we give ourselves to Him completely not to get anything in return, not to feel better, not to get a quick fix for a problem we have, not to fill up our spiritual tank, none of that. This is setting aside our will for the Lord's. This is a complete relinquishment of our own lives because God is worthy of our lives. I mean, that's returning to our first love. And in fact, you could argue that that is salvation and eternal life. This is the main thing. And Jesus said it, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. My friend Fred got it. If anything's pulling you away from Jesus, get rid of it. Because the life we think we're living apart from the Lord, despite all our good work and successes and all that, is really no life at all. So come home to God. Or in the words of the final chapter of Revelation, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Real life. Come home to God. The invitation is always before us. Turn away from everything you know to be wrong. Turn toward Jesus and ask him to forgive you and fill you with his spirit. And ask the Lord to help you in both faith and life. Come home to God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we bless you for your patience with us. Thank you that you have invited us to come home to you and that you continue to invite us to come home to you. Rekindle in us our first love for you. Help us, God, to, to live with you, to walk with you in relationship all the days of our lives. Empower us by your spirit to lay our lives down for you, to give ourselves to you now and more fully. We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us love you. We pray in your name. Amen.